You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Once again, thank you for joining us each and every week for another amazing and exciting story. Before we get to this week's guest, I want to remind you this week's episode brought to you by our newest sponsor, Cabela's, the world's foremost outfitter of hunting, fishing, and outdoor gear. Cabela's provides everyone from the expert hunter and angler to the family looking to get away for the weekend camping trip with the right gear at the best prices. So if you're looking to outfit your next big adventure or just looking for some great gear to use around the house, the cabin, go to our sponsors page, hazardground.com sponsors. That's hazardground.com sponsors and click on the Cabela's banner. You have to go through our sponsors page if you want to help out the show and make the most of your next outdoor adventure. We're also continuing to run our promotion with Amazon and Knife Country USA. Use the Amazon link on our homepage, hazardground.com. Do all of your Amazon shopping. Cost you nothing, and we'll donate a portion of the proceeds to the amazing veterans organizations that you have seen featured on this show. Also, click on the Knife Country USA banner on our sponsors page. Same one, hazardground.com sponsors. Use the code HAZARD1 at checkout to receive 15% off your entire order. Knife Country USA has the largest selection of knives, cutlery, and accessories on the internet with over 30,000 models. From over 500 manufacturers, Knife Country USA is confident they have the perfect item for you. In addition to a tremendous selection, no other company can beat Knife Country USA's commitment to exceptional customer service. Their owner personally guarantees it. Once again, we thank you for listening to the Hazard Ground, being part of the Hazard Ground community, and always following us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, keeping up with the show. Don't forget to leave a rating and review on iTunes. You guys are the best audience out there, and we love all the support that you give us. Now on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is a guest with one of the most dynamic resumes we've ever had on the podcast. He is a former Marine captain with two deployments to Iraq, a graduate of Cornell University, the founder and CEO of Higher Purpose, the executive director of the Headstrong Project, and the CEO of Task and Purpose, the website, and the cherry on top, a documentary film director of the movie The Western Front. He is Zach Iskell here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Zach, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks. I hope my wife and my mom hear that, uh, that introduction. <laughs> well, also- <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I, you bring up your wife. Interesting story about how you two met and got together. I, I do want to hear about that because it was over the tragedy, I guess, of Hurricane Sandy. Am I correct? It was. Yeah. So uh, I, I thank I, I thank God for Hurricane Sandy because <laughs> it it helped me land somebody who is way out of my league. Yeah, I'll kick your coverage. Certainly did. Well, let's <laughs> let's go back to the beginning here and start uh, why you joined joined the Marine Corps. Because I mean, you went to Cornell, so it's not like you weren't on a fast track to something great. Yeah, I don't know if I was on a fast track to something great, but uh, my um, you know I grew every all, most of the the men in my family had served. I grew up. Um, my uh, my dad's stepfather was a, a tank driver in Patton's army in World War II. Wow. Um, his uh, father, his biological father, who passed away when he was young, was a uh, captain in the army. He served uh, in Europe as well. Um, and so I grew up with with their stories. Uh, my dad's uncle was was killed uh, in World War II when his bomber was shot down. Um, and so I grew up with those stories and, and, and I always knew I wanted to serve the, the serve, serve in the military. And then when I went to Cornell, I played a sport called lightweight football, which is a varsity sport. Um, but, uh, 
the football coach at Cornell is a guy named Perry Cullen, and he was a Marine officer in Vietnam, received the Silver Star, the Purple Heart, um, and he is he was a really important mentor of mine, and he encouraged me to join the Marine Corps. And so that that ultimately is what led me joining the Marines as opposed to the other branches. Well, you graduated in 2001, so 9-11 hadn't actually happened yet. I actually graduated August 11th, 2001. Or I was commissioned August 11th, 2001, and then 9/11 happened. Um, I'm from New York, you know. I was I got I was out of the city, but I got back to the city the the days after 9/11, and uh, immediately changed my report date to TBS. Um, I wanted to get to the basic school as quickly as possible, and I actually went into the Marine Corps on a flight contract. I was supposed to be a pilot, and uh, I'm the sucker who thought if I went to flight school. I'd miss the war. So I, uh, I went into the infantry and, uh, you know, I could have been a pilot. The war is, as far as I know, it's still going on. Yeah, no, it certainly is. Um, that whole experience, uh, you know, you, you wanted to go into the Marine Corps and then 9-11 happens. Um, did you want to accelerate it because of the desire to serve and be in this thing? Or was that just something you had already agreed to do? And then 9-11 happened. You're like, oh, damn, this, the whole world just changed on me. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the world definitely changed, um, but I didn't, you know, when, when you're young and dumb, you don't want to, you don't want to, you, you don't want to miss something like that, right? I grew up with my grandparents' stories from World War II. I wanted to have my stories, um, and I think I was, I was that impressionable young man, as so many of us are, who, who joined the military. And, uh, and so I sped up the timeline and, and did my best to, to rush off as quickly as possible. Uh, give me the expedited version. So you, you go through infantry training and everything else. I mean, uh, give me the, the the timeline before you deploy. Yeah. So I um I went to uh, went to the basic school, then went to infantry officer course, uh, then got orders to first battalion, first marines. Uh, showed up there, was a platoon commander. Did a mu deployment on ship. We went ashore in Iraq, but it was after the initial invasion. It was largely uneventful. Um, and we had thought at that, I mean, this was sort of the end of 2003, things were quiet in Iraq, uh, things were relatively quiet in Afghanistan. And I felt like, yeah, I had served, but it felt at that time, like, like I had, I had missed the war. Most of my buddies had been in the march up. And then on the, as we were, uh, sailing home, um, things started heating up in Fallujah. And my platoon sergeant is a guy named Nick Fox. He's still one of my closest friends to this day. But he and I, you know, we're, we just talk at night, you know, on the ship. And we figured out that we had to get to the next deploying unit. So we both requested to cross deck over to 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines when we got home. Uh, we got home in, I think, February of March of 2004. And then we were back out the door in June with, with 3-1. And three one really became my second family. I mean, this uh, the battalion is still incredibly close. Uh, we had a remarkable leadership team from the battalion commander and sergeant major on down. Uh, there's actually a reunion next week out in Pendleton. I might try and make, um, but it was it was a remarkable unit that came together at a uh, you know really tough time in Iraq. The uh, yeah. you know Fallujah was was going off. Uh, we fought in the second battle of Fallujah. Um, the battalion performed remarkably well. And, uh, you know, it's the great honor of my life that I was in 3-1. Let me ask you, when you look back on it, because you have this great desire to serve, right? And, and you want your story, as you heard from all your family members. When you look back on it, 
the hard and fast desire to get into combat, does that seem strange to you now? Like, it's almost, you know, why would I want to run into something that could literally kill me? I'm sure you can answer that question as well as I can. You know, I mean, I think it's just, it's, you know, I, I don't know why we think that way. I'm not sure what, what the, the root of that is. Um, you know, I'm, I, I, I love this country. Um, I, I found, you know, even though our war is sort of a difficult war to understand or to really, to understand if we accomplished anything, um, or really what was the purpose of that war. But I think at the end of the day, when you are in that situation, you're fighting for the, the Marine on your left and the Marine on your right. And those relationships, um, those bonds, they can't be replicated anywhere else. Um, and, and I'm very, you know, as, as, as awful as some of the experiences of combat are, I, uh, you know, remain incredibly grateful for those, those friendships. Let's go to the second battle of Fallujah, because uh, it was, I mean, hell doesn't really capture it all quite encompassing. Uh, when, when you go through that experience, um, you know, in the macro, when you look back on it, you talk very highly of it and you're very grateful for it. But what stands out to you about it the most? Yeah, I, what stands out to me, I think just the incredible heroism of the Marines, you know, and, 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 and seeing um, what these young men were doing day in and day out for each other. And I think, um, you know, whether it's, it's, you know, Marines running into a burning building under fire, uh, whether it's Marines shielding um, another Marine with their body from grenade blasts and machine gun fire, um, whether it's, you know, a little moment like being in Fallujah, you know, I think it was the second day of fighting was the Marine Corps birthday and wishing each other happy birthday as you're, you know, going house to house. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of memories from that city. Um, and, you know, also there, there's, you also get a sense of, of, um, you know, and again, I, I I really feel incredibly lucky that I got to be a part of that unit three, one. And, you know, there's, there's stories of guys like our air officer, whose, uh, whose name was Puck, um, Patrick Gologly, who, you know, this guy was worked, you know, night and day for two weeks straight, arranging fire support, close air support and medical evacu uh, evacs. And you think about the number of lives he saved by being so incredibly competent as, at his job, to ensure that the second a guy made it out of the city to the LZ, that there was a bird waiting to take him to uh, the medical cache. It was, you know, I, I think it just gave me an appreciation for how remarkable the people are who, who choose to join the service, how selfless they are, and that they're really, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, they're doing it for their country, um, but at the end of the day, they're really doing it for each other. And and to be a, be a part of that and to witness that, uh, you know, it's um it's pretty remarkable to say the least and very powerful to uh to look back on let's get into the nitty-gritty of this when when you go to the second battle of fallujah what were you told uh give people the time frame and, and what was the mission that you guys undertook yeah so it was it was november of 2004 mm -hmm. um you know fallujah at that point had become an enemy stronghold it was it was um, you know it was enemy held territory it was a, a staging ground for al-qaeda to launch attacks you know suicide 
attacks, SVBID attacks. Um, they would kidnap people and bring them into the city. I mean, we, we found one of Zarqawi's safe houses in the city. There was a stack of, it must have been 30, 40, or 50 ID cards. Um, you know, there was tapes of executions. There was blood on the walls. Um, it was a place where he was, you know, cutting people's heads off. And, um, and that's what Fallujah was. And so, you know, in earlier that year in the first battle of Fallujah, um, you know, Mattis famously thought it was a bad idea to send Marines into the city. Uh, and then after, you know, I don't know, I can't remember how many days of fighting it was, but the, the powers that be, um, basically stopped the Marines short of taking the city which Mattis also thought was a mistake. And I think that's just sort of a metaphor for the entire Iraq war that we shouldn't have done it in the first place, but then we shouldn't have pulled out the way that we did, um, you know, in 2011. And so, um, you know, that left this fester that was, that was really affecting the rest of the country and something had to be done about it. And so right after the 2004 presidential elections, we got sent into the city and uh, I think it was, I, you know, I should have looked some of this stuff up or refreshed my memory, but there was, I think, five, four or five Marine Corps battalions and two or three Army CAV units. Um, so it was like 10 or 12,000 U.S. troops being sent into the city. Um, the full combined arms force, I mean, we had artillery, we had close air support, and our job was to get online and go block by block, house by house, room by room, um, killing, capturing, pushing out all the insurgents from the city so that it could become a, uh, a safe place for people to live again. And so that it also wouldn't, um, uh, wouldn't bleed out to the rest of Iraq. Let me ask you, you mentioned that room that you walked in with the ID cards and you realized what went on in that room. I had a similar experience in Baghdad and, you walk into a certain area and then your mind starts to race about how things and for lack of a better way to put it, just the pure evil that went on. And at that moment in time, do you wrap your head around it all or do you just kind of discard it? And and then it comes back to you later. Yeah, I think it's, it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think it's, I think in that type of environment, you, you don't really have a lot of time to be thinking, um, uh, or philosophizing on some of these subjects. Um, it's definitely something that, that, you know, you think about later. Um, certainly what leads people to be able to do those types of things. Um, you know, I know for me, one of the concerns I had is a lot of those ID cards were translators. Um, I had a translator who I was incredibly, incredibly close to. And so it, for me, I think more than anything, it, it put in perspective, you know, we're going out on patrols. Uh, we've got, you know, medium machine guns. We've got a platoon of Marines. We've got air support if we need it. We're traveling around in armored vehicles. Uh, then you've got these translators who are working with you who, at the end of the day, they're driving home to their families. You know, and you realize that we can we can celebrate the sacrifices being made by the men and women of, of the U.S. military. There's people in these countries that we're operating in who are taking on far greater risks. They're putting their entire families at risk. They're putting themselves at risk, uh, and they're in far greater danger. And and that became very real looking at those ID cards. You know what always puzzled me? I've never been able to really reconcile 
I, I would see a situation like that. I, I would, you know, be in a room like that, and I would think of like, and my first reaction was, God, these people are just like sick. Like, how evil can these people be? And then you stop and think for a second, well, I'm sitting here holding the end of a rifle that is charged with taking the life of somebody else, and I don't think you can split levels of evil. It's either evil or it's not. You know, there's no degrees of evilness. And so it's just a weird dichotomy uh, that you, you never really put in context in war. And then when you get out of it, you start to think back and reflect on it. You go, you know, I mean, th- there's, there's no winners in any of this. I mean, I, I don't want to be all, you know, existential and everything, but y- y- the reflection you get from your experiences, as you know, Zach, is, uh, uh, kind of helps define the way you go forward and the way you view things in the future. Yeah, I think I think one of the other things that I learned is so after after I got out of the Marines, I went back as a filmmaker. Um, I, I became really interested in the story of the Allen Bar Awakening and how the Marines, you know, literally turned one of the most violent provinces in Iraq to one of the safest in really a matter of months. And that one of the things that they had realized is, yeah, there are some evil people who are doing some really evil stuff in Iraq. Um, but there are also people who are fighting us who, as painful as it is to say, have legitimate grievances, right? They don't want Americans in their backyard. We wouldn't want foreigners in our backyard. They had a family member killed at a checkpoint. Um, you know, they are uh, – so, so there, there are some folks who, who had legitimate grievances, and I think what the Marines learned is how to reach out how to partner with them, how to do more, you know, jaw, jaw and less fight, fight. Um, and I think that is a really important lesson of, of the importance of diplomacy and some of that. And yeah, there are people that need to be killed. Um, but there are also people that you can bring over to your side that you can give some construction contracts to, uh, that you can enroll in the police. So they're taking home a paycheck to their families, and there are some ways of, of building a, you know, confederation or an alliance of people uh, with who are with you for disparate reasons, um, but who reduce the number of people you have to fight, and also are going to be much more competent and able to identify the people in their in their neighborhoods and their towns and villages who need to be killed, um, and help you uh, help you through that process. So I thought that was a really important lesson. And so, yeah, there is there is the evil, but I think there's also a lot of other folks who are fighting us for a variety of reasons. And it's and I think that's an important lesson that needs to be captured from these wars. You mentioned the film. I want to get back to it in a minute, but I, I do want to ask you more about, you know, the, the second battle of Fallujah. When you take casualties there, what was that experience like for you? Um you know, it's, it's, um, th- th- there's, there's nothing worse than, than losing a Marine. Um, you know, I think, um, I think at the same time, you know, I, I, I mentioned this briefly earlier, but the, the, the team that came together was remarkable. And I think there's a lot of people who are still alive because of that team. Um, we had a Marine who was shot in the head within an hour he was at a you know level one trauma facility and he's still alive to this day doing great stuff and um and so i think that is you know there's there's something remarkable there too about the the 
medical professionals who are, you know, parts of these units up and down the chain of command from the fire team squad, platoon company, you know, all the way up to the, the MEF level. Um, and beyond, I mean, even, you know, and, and getting them to Germany and getting them to DC or Bethesda, um, it's, it's really remarkable. And there's a lot of people who are still alive because of that team. When you think back about the Marines you lost, um, what stays with you? Um, what stands out? And, um, I know you said that, you know, pulling out in 2011 was a mistake. Do, do you feel like any of it was... Waste is not the right word. It, 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 any of it didn't meet its design purpose. I mean, that's that's a big question. I think, you know, one of the most important conversations I've had in my life was with uh, one of our Marines who was killed, this guy named Byron Norwood. And um, I had barbecue with his, his mom and dad uh, um shortly after we got home from Iraq and they live in, in Pflugerville, Texas. And, um, uh, you know, speaking to Bill and Janet, Bill made a point and he said, you know, nothing makes us happier um, than seeing Byron's friends start businesses, start families, go back to school, live meaningful, full lives. And so, uh, you know, I think that you know, those of us who were fortunate enough to know people like Byron Norwood, uh, we have an obligation to live our lives as fully as possible to give their lives meaning. You know, a lot of us came home because of other people who gave their lives. And I think that the best way of honoring them is we're never going to be able to honor them with whatever happens or doesn't happen in Iraq. Um, but I think we can honor them with how we choose to live our lives. And, and that's the best we can do. Um, and it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's not a good answer, but it's, it's, it's the only answer. I think I always ask this question to people who go through tough battles and, and tough experiences in combat. And I know it's sort of loaded, so forgive the nature of it. But when you left Fallujah and you look back on it, did you take it as a win? Whew. Uh, did I take it as a win? Um, and let me let me let me cut you off one the, second. I just want to. I know we don't preface things in terms of wins and losses in battle, right? But you know, that's the way society understands things. It's very binary, right? Either we did it right or we did it wrong. Either we won or we lost. And and I asked that question. Like I said, I know it's loaded because I'm always curious to see how people define what a win or a success is in combat. And I've heard a variety of different answers. So uh, I kind of just want to get your your honest opinion on it. Yeah, look, tactically, it was a huge win. Uh, but, you know, the problem with with today's military is there's no strategy. Um, you know, we, we have we have zero strategy. And without strategy, no matter how good you are tactically, you're not going to win. Um, and so at the time, it was a huge tactical win. You know, Fallujah became one of the safest places for about six or seven months no Marines died in Fallujah or outside of Fallujah, I think, for uh, about a year, um, other than for through a, a vehicle accident. Um, and so in that sense, you know, tactically it was a win. But strategically, there was no strategy. And if you don't have strategy, you know, how can you even define what a win is? Yeah, and, and that's, that's the, the point of it. Um, I, I think that 
a lot of people will, a lot of people I, I've spoken to on this podcast have, have viewed it in that prism that, you know, hey, we, we were charged with a mission. We completed our mission. Yes, that's a victory. Now, what context that victory falls in is a whole different discussion, and it's different for other people. You know, I mean, I always told people during my first deployment in 05 to 06 in Baghdad, for my portion of the pie, it was an absolute win. We, we changed lives. We affected things on the ground level. We, we, we made the Iraq and the area that we were in a better, safer place for everybody around us. What happened when I left and everything that changed after that, you know, would I consider that a win? No, I think it's a loss, but I didn't have any control over that. So um, you can only control your piece of the pie and only affect what you, you know, your sphere of influence. And, and uh, it's just, I, I think the, the terms in which people come to grips with what they did and what they accomplished is, is varying in degrees. And it's always interesting to me. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. All right, let's uh, let's move past the battle of Fallujah and everything else because you get out of the Marine Corps, right? And and that decision was it easy for you? What was kind of the impetus for it? You know, I um, I was ready to start. Actually, it's interesting. You know, one of the impetuses was um, I was uh, I was giving a brief to a bunch of 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 officers about something. Um, that is, is sort of inconsequential, but I, and it was, it was, a, it was an important brief, but like, I realized like what I was saying wasn't going to change anything. And, and while I was doing it, my phone kept ringing in my pocket and it kept ringing and ringing and ringing. I knew my phone was ringing because my grandmother had just passed away and I was very, very close to my grandmother. I also couldn't pick up the phone and call my grandmother uh, or call my family. And I knew that they were calling me to tell us because I was, I was giving this brief I thought it was kind of important, but it wasn't going to change anything. It didn't really matter in the big picture about anything. But, um, you know, at that moment, I sort of started to think about, you know, whether I was going to get get in or get out. And and I, I was very proud of my service. I'd done everything I sort of had wanted to do or intended to do in the Marine Corps. And, uh, but decided that it was time for me to get out and, and do other things with my life. And, um and so that was that was that. Forgive the uh, presumptuous nature of this question, but uh, yeah. a, a Cornell graduate, you seem to be a very cerebral Marine. Most of the Marines we come encounter with, whether officer or enlisted, and I'm not saying you didn't love being a Marine, but there is a certain kind of uh, wavelength that they operate on that you seem to be, I, I don't want to con- make it condescending, but you seem to be above that. You're, you're much more thoughtful. <laughs> if I could just put a gentle, I think that's bullshit. Um, really? Oh yeah. I mean, look, yeah, I went to Cornell. I'll tell you that a lot of the folks I went to Cornell with do not hold a candle in terms of, uh, their intelligence, their thoughtfulness, uh, um, to a lot of the folks I served with enlisted an officer. Um, and you know, it's, it's one of the things that, you know, one of the great things about the military is you're exposed to a big cross section of America. Um, and I learned really quickly that an Ivy league degree and an Ivy league education doesn't mean anything. Um, it's certainly not a sign of, of greater intelligence or capacity or knowledge in that, you know, there was, uh, you know, always a lot of people who were much, much smarter than me who, um, many of them didn't even have a college education and, um, and, and I was always, I mean, I was always impressed by their, 
not only tactical competence and knowledge, but their thoughtfulness, the way they think about the world, um, for certain. Well, and again, I just part of it is the 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 way you present yourself. Um, you know, it just it just comes across different. I mean, like I, I we talk to Marines, a lot of them when when they get into Marine story mode you can hear their voice and their intonation change. And it's almost like they bring <laughs> themselves back into that moment and you can feel the intensity and you can feel it all. You seem to be very even keeled with it all. I've had a lot of, look, I'm, I'm an old man now. I just turned 40 <laughs> years old. I've got three kids, one on the way, like, you know, that stuff pacifies you. Sure. Um, and, and, but you know, by far, you know, some of the most thoughtful people I know are also some of the most dangerous people on this planet who, you know, I had the pleasure of serving with. Fair enough. All right, let's move on. Uh, did you know what you were going to do next when you got out of the Marine Corps? Uh, I didn't. I knew, um, you know, I I knew that there were some things I wanted to um, to do. Number one is I felt at the time that if if the lessons of of the war were not captured, we'd be bound to repeat the mistakes we made. Sure, yeah, and and that led to me making a film, uh, the Western Front, um, about the war in Al Anbar Province, and and I thought that it was it was just important to to capture those lessons and tell that story, and and so I, I went on a two three year odyssey of making that film. And what did you what did you want that film to be about? I, I mean, I, I wonder I always feel like there are a lot of stories about the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan that are misrepresented or mistold and not consistent with the truth or the facts. They're close, but they kind of just miss the core principles of a lot of things. How important was that in making the movie? Uh it was probably too important. I think often really? you know, I think in hindsight when you make a film, uh, oftentimes you have to make decisions about the truth that actually help you get closer to the truth, even though you might be cutting things out or simplifying things, but it ultimately enables you to get a little bit closer to the truth. I, I was, you know, when you're telling a story about people you not only know, but people you served with in combat it adds another layer of complexity as a filmmaker or a journalist or a documentarian that you want to do right by them. Yeah. And that can make it very, very difficult to tell a story. Um, and, and I think we did a fair job of it. Uh, I think at the end of the day, there were certain lessons I wanted to capture in terms of um, uh, counterinsurgency and the Ambar awakening and some of the mistakes I made in combat and capturing those. Uh, and so I think we did that. I think we probably could have done it better. Um, but for me, you know, one of the, um, one of the most important lessons my dad sort of taught me growing up was, uh, if you fuck up, you've got to, you know, take responsibility for your actions and figure out how to do right by them and fix them. And, you know, that started with, you know, Halloween night where I went out, you know, shaving creamed houses through toilet paper and trees, threw some cherry bombs and mailboxes 
And uh, the such a New morning, York thing, man. <laughs> I did the same yeah, thing well, as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so we, uh, you know, the next morning, um, you know, my dad had me out there knocking on doors, apologizing and cleaning up the entire street. Wow. And I think that, you know, if you fast forward, um, you know, there was a lot of mistakes that we made in Iraq. We were very quick to pull the trigger. Um, you know, we uh, were much quicker to uh, use force as opposed to use diplomacy. And and I think the lesson of the Alamber Awakening is, is that alliances, even at the tactical level, are critically important, especially in an environment like that. I don't know if you can answer this question, um, but in all your dealings with and, and making veterans' lives better and everything else, when you look back on the tactical, strategic, operational manner in which the war was handled in both the wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, um, d did we do it right? Did we have the right people making the right decisions? Oh, I don't think so. I think, I think uh, strategically, absolutely not. We had... I don't think anybody had a clue as to what they were doing um, at the most senior levels. And I think it was just fiasco after fiasco. And I, and I chalk it up. I don't think it was um, – I don't buy you know, that Bush lied or that there was some you know, big conspiracy for oil money or profit. I think it was largely just incompetence. Um, and, and I think one of the things when you look at the wars that our country has won – it's because we've had a president at the helm who really understood strategy, right? I mean, you think about FDR, you know, FDR, you know, here's a guy in a wheelchair and his generals who are highly decorated veterans of World War One and the Banana Wars, they want to do a cross-channel invasion. And somehow FDR knows that the U.S. military is not ready to take on the German army. And somehow he knows that like invading North Africa uh, will give the U.S. military time to really evolve into a modern fighting force. And at the same time, allow the Russians to really trick the German, the German army in Europe. Like that, that was him, that his generals were adamantly opposed to that. But somehow he had the confidence and the foresight to, to have that strategic vision for how we were going to win World War II. And we don't have thinkers like that today. Um, I don't. I don't see anybody at the helm and, and at the, the highest levels of government who are thinking strategically about how to keep America safe, how to win these wars, how to get ourselves out of these different situations. Um, and I think it's a you know it's a shame because at the tactical level, ironically, we've never been better. Yeah. That makes sense. And and honestly, just for two cents, I, I think that in 20 years, when guys like you and me who have hung up our uniform and we go all into public service and we move up the ladder and do those things, we'll be much better strategically because we've been in those wars and we fought them all. You know, I think if you look at the course of American history from you know, late 1890s to the turn of the century, we, we had a lot of battles going on. Spanish-American War, everything else that was going on. You know, you're leading to World War One and then World War Two. I mean, we had 30 years, really, of literally back-to-back -back combat with little little breaks in between. And I think that we had seasoned people in the right places who experienced that and saw mistakes made and then chose to learn from them. And I, I it's my hope for our country that in 10, 15 years, when people like you and I have hung it all up and, and decided that, 
you know, we wanted to go into a life of public service and, and take on those jobs that were better suited for it down the road. Yeah, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Um, let's kind of go back to the, the, the film for a minute, because when you talk about what you wanted to accomplish with it and, and the story you wanted to tell, when you look back, did you do those things that you hoped to do? Uh, no, <laughs> I, mean, I, I think, I think the film in some ways did, but you know, I, uh, I, I had no idea what I was doing as a filmmaker. And, um, I think, you know, one of the, le the one of the lessons of the Marine Corps was like, you can accomplish great things if you got the right team. And when I was making this film, it was largely, you know, I was the writer, I was the director, I was the producer. I had a really solid editor. I had a really solid director of photography and a, and a really solid producer. Um, but I should have hired or found somebody to be the director. I should have found a co-writer to work on it with me. Um, I certainly should have found somebody to help me distribute it because um, there are people out there who are very competent in those areas, much more so than I was. And I think that would have made it more successful in terms of actually having an impact. What was the match that started the flame that, you know, ignited your desire to change veterans' lives? Was it something that happened during your deployments or after? I mean, what was the, the beginning of all that? You know, I think um, it's, it's – it's, I, 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 the problems were just front and center, right? And 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 – when 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 the problems are right in front of you and and they're affecting people that you know and love and care deeply about you don't really have a choice but to start figuring out how to address them um and so i never intended to be in the veteran space i never intended to run organizations doing stuff with veterans um it's the last thing i expected myself to be doing in my 30s and now into my 40s um, but I think one of the lessons of wars is that even when the war is over, the costs of those wars go on for another lifetime or two, um, the personal costs and, you know, those costs still need to be paid. And, um, unfortunately, and so I, you know, figured out some different ways and, and some folks who could help me in, in serving this community. And take me through that. I mean, you know, when you start to dip your toe into this pool, do you realize how messy it is? Yeah. Um, so I I started off. I was I was starting my own business, and and my last job in the Marine Corps, I had an opportunity to, to help build the recruiting, screening, assessment, and selection program for MARSOC for Marine Special Operations. And when I was starting my own business, I figured. There's a lot of talk at the time about skills translation and problems veterans were having transitioning to civilian workforce. I had this background in recruiting and assessment, so I figured I could start a company that would help uh, other companies hire military talent, and uh, that led to higher purpose. And, and just at the time, I, I was raising money for it, and I went out and spoke to two investors, and I was telling them about my battalion. My battalion was one of the hardest hit battalions in the Iraq war. We lost 33 Marines in Fallujah. About half the battalion was wounded. And we, at that time had had 20 something suicides. And I, I told this to a guy named Al Rabin, a guy named Dave Petruco, who became the co-founders of a nonprofit I started called Headstrong. And these two guys being brilliant businessmen, 
uh, became very uninterested in investing in my business and very interested in how do we solve that problem of, of suicide. And so we did a golf tournament, raised about $250,000 and started a program in New York City through a partnership with Cornell Medical Center to provide world-class mental health care to Iraq and Afghanistan veterans in New York. And that that was about six years ago. That's now expanded. We're in about 25 cities. Um, and what we do is we build networks of private practice providers, psychiatrists, psychologists, licensed clinical social workers who deliver care. We pay all the uh, we pay the full bill of of a veteran getting treatment. Um, and then the care is also managed by our team at Cornell here in New York across the country. So we know the folks that we're paying to get treated are actually getting better. And the program is is incredibly effective. Um, we've learned that you can absolutely recover from PTSD if you get the right help. Um, we make sure folks are getting the right help. And so that uh, that's growing. We brought in a new executive director, a guy named Joe Quinn, who came to us from Team RWB, who is just a um, – a real personal sort of hero of mine and somebody I respect immensely. And, and he's now at the helm of the organization doing really remarkable stuff and, and growing us into more communities that need us. So higher purpose is out there. Was, is it exactly what it sounds like? I mean, you're just getting veterans jobs. Yeah. We just worked with, com- you know, it, it's less about getting veterans jobs and more about helping companies hire military talent. I mean, the way that we look at this problem is, Despite what you read in the media, veterans actually have lower unemployment than, than the national average. We make more money. We have higher rates of entrepreneurship. We have, uh, we're better educated than our civilian peers. Uh, and a lot of companies in America right now are struggling to find good people. Unemployment is incredibly low. And yet every year there's 250,000 people that leave the military and enter the civilian workforce. And so what we do is we help companies – uh, higher military talent because if you're a smart business, smart businesses are run by smart people and there's no better people than the folks leaving the military. And so we help them through sourcing, through strategy, through training, through marketing and advertising, uh, through job posts, we help them hire military talent. So how do you develop task and purpose, which is how, you know, I learned of you. It's a a website that, uh, I mean, I characterize it as a kind of news website with a military spin, a military point of view, uh, and and I really appreciate the honesty of the writers and and the candid, uh, you know, way that they present things through the eyes of a service member because we do view the world through a different prism because of the skills that we have and the training that we have and everything else. And there's a lot less spin on it from that standpoint. Uh, that's just my own personal opinion of it. Feel free to correct me if I misstated it. But task and purpose, how does that begin? So it, it started out as a blog for higher purpose. You know, it's just a source of traffic and lead generation for higher purpose. And it was literally higherpurpose.com backslash blog. And we, uh, we hired a great editor in chief named Brian Jones, who is a Marine. Uh, and he started writing some stuff and it started going viral. So we decided to spin it out as a separate site. Um, and then about, I think it might have been like a year later, um, it was about a year later, year and a half later, um, Brian came to me, about a year and a half later, Brian came to me and said, you know, there's a story he wants to tell, that there's these uh, online, secret online groups, you know, Marines United, 
uh, JTOTs, just the tip of the spear, that were harassing women service members. Um, you know, in some cases, they were actually putting bounty on women, saying like, you know, I want this sergeant. I've got a crush on her. I want a photo of her in a shower. What? Um, and, you know, harassing people. There was, um, you know, people posting photos that had been sent to, you know, boyfriends or, um, you know, just they're doing a lot of terrible stuff. And it was very prevalent. And Brian said, this is wrong. And we need to write about this. And uh, so we did. And we got a lot of hate mail. Um, our director of operations, Katie Dexter, she who served in Iraq, was in the Army. She had people leaving her voicemails trying to rape and kill her. Brian Jones got hate mail and death threats. Um, and I remember, and I, I looked at Brian at one of this, and I saw that, like, none of this bothered him at all. And I looked at him, and I was like, are you bothered? How come, how are you not bothered by this? And he said, because we're right and we did the right thing. And eventually, you know, the Marine Corps still hasn't figured out how to address these online social media groups. I think they're taking some steps to, but at least it led to a change in Marine Corps policy. And I think one of the things I learned is it said something to a lot of, there's a lot of vets and a lot of folks in the service that just appreciated that finally somebody was coming out and saying, this is wrong. Right. Like nobody, nobody had had the integrity or the courage at that point to just step forward and say, this is not right. And for me, that that moment was really the birth of what Task and Purpose uh, has eventually become. You know, there's there's other sites out there that just sort of play to the crowd. Um, that's not who we are. We call things the way that we see them. We try and give voice to all sides of an issue and to veterans of a lot of different political and opinion and a lot of political persuasions and of differing opinions. Um, but I think one thing is, is that this is the military represents an incredibly diverse community, right? However you want to define diversity, it exists in the military. And if my opinion, if you served, you've earned the right to be hurt whether you're black, white, Asian, woman, gay, straight, whatever it is, you have a right to be heard. And Task and Purpose is a place that we intend to give uh, veterans a voice. And I think the other important part of it is, you know, veterans and service members, um, we're the ones who are bearing the brunt of these wars. And often there is not a soapbox for us to stand on to be heard. And Task and Purpose is read by the highest levels of government. I know the, the Commander of the Marine Corps reads it. I know uh, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, Joint Chiefs reads it. I know people in the White House read it. And so it's an opportunity for those of us who are at the tactical level to be heard um, and, and uh, to have meaningful conversations. And so that's what, what Task and Purpose has grown into. It's unreal. I mean, it just it, I stumbled upon it just because I saw it retweeted and things of that nature, and I started reading the work of, of the columnists and the writers. And I was, you know, just impressed. I just, I, I loved being educated, you know, and having smart people make me smarter. And um, that, that to me was what drew me to it. But uh, when you talk about the scope of what you've been able to create, uh, do you look back on it and just go, wow, I, I mean, how did this simple blog turn into what we have now? Yeah, it's, um, um, yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that, you know, and I think uh, um, I'm, I'm really proud of what, what the team has built here. 
I know this is like asking you which of your children is your favorite, but between, you know, founder and CEO, higher purpose, executive director, headstrong, and the task and purpose and the documentary film, do, do you have one of these things that kind of is above the other and, and, and you look at it, go, this is probably the, the, the best thing I've done, the best thing I've created? Uh, no, no. I mean, um, I, you know, I, I am, uh, you know, we've got, we've got phenomenal teams that, that work uh, across all these different organizations and brands. And, um, you know, I feel, feel very lucky to be a part of all of it. You know, one thing, one thing you've consistently woven in a lot of your answers to my questions, and I'm not surprised by it by any stretch, but maybe some of our listeners haven't been paying that close attention is you keep using the phrase, one of the things back in the Marine Corps, something that we did in the Marine Corps, and it keeps coming back to it. And so uh, before, when I talked to you about being a cerebral Marine, you know, obviously everything that you've gotten there is still very much of the fabric of who you are and the things you've created. Yeah, look, I, I think there's, uh, I am, you know, I got to serve with, with a remarkable group of Marines and, you know, I, uh, and, and I know we were one little battalion amongst many that, that passed through Iraq and Afghanistan and, and other places around the world. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's, you know, that, that just, it sticks with you. I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's nothing like being part of a unit like that. A, a quasi-political question, if you will. Uh, mm-hmm. You talk so much about how you love the country, and obviously you've done great work for veterans and things of that nature. I, I know our military now is stronger um, than it's ever been from a, you know, equipment standpoint, a training standpoint, things of that nature. But um, are, are we in a better spot now with our military as these wars are starting to tail off than we were before? It's a great question. I don't. I don't know if I have a good answer to that. I think. Um, I think there are very real uh, challenges our military is facing. Um, there are recruiting challenges. Uh, there is a focus challenge. You know, the world is is rapidly evolving, and yeah. I think we are quickly in danger of becoming those folks that are. You know, the cavalry forces that were. You know, that were were charging. Uh, at trench lines, you know, and into machine gun fire in World War One, <clears throat> and I think that we have a, a, a still a massive um, emphasis on the kinetic, and on a, a, and and that is needed. But I think you know one of the things that we're learning is is that there are there's things in the cyber realm that we need to make sure we're competitive in. There are things in the information operations level of warfare that we need to make sure that we are competent in. And that's not just from that, – that's both from a defensive perspective and from an offensive capabilities perspective. And I think that other countries around the world, you know, they know they're not going to beat us in a stand-up, knockdown brawl. Right. Um, but they could outmaneuver us on the cyber front. They can outmaneuver us on the IO warfare front. Um, they can also out, you know, outmaneuver us by having us spend astronomical amounts of money that we're borrowing from other countries, uh, you know, fighting wars that have no end. So I think that, you know, 
while tactically we are still very good, those structural issues and those strategic issues uh, and also the natural evolution of warfare, um, you know, there, there's there, there's a lot of work the military needs to be doing to, to maintain uh, the leading edge in, in, in the coming decades. You mentioned earlier about, you know, what task and purpose uncovered that story and the awful stuff that was going on. And because media is so invasive and pervasive nowadays and, and the way we cover things, that includes our military. Part of me has always said, look, I, I believe in the First Amendment and I certainly believe in um, the public having a right to know certain things. But in the same respect, uh, I think it was a lot easier for us to do our jobs in the military when we were less a focus on everyday life. Do you feel that that is also the case or is it a, is, is, is it the public's, um, you know, uh, do they have a right to know everything that we get into and why we do it and how we do it? Do they have a right to know? I think, um, I think transparency is a good thing. Um, you know, I think there are naturally, there's always some things that, that need to be kept a secret, but, uh, I think the, the, the more the American people know, the, uh, you know, ultimately the better. I mean, right now, I mean, if you walk down the street, how many people could actually pick out Afghanistan on the map? <laughs> um, you know, it's not even a subject of the upcoming midterms yet. You know, we have people deployed there, right? We're spending significant amounts of money in these places. We're still losing men and women in these places. Um, that's got to be a part of the national conversation. I agree a hundred percent. All right, let's, uh, let's end things a little bit on, on a lighter note. Uh, I do want to hear more about the story about how you met your wife because you're doing all these great work. <laughs> well, you're doing all this great work for veterans, right? And it's one of those freak things you mentioned before hurricane Sandy happens. And as is your nature, you just want to help, right? You're just going out there to help. And all of a sudden, you know, fate takes a hand here. Yeah, so I, I'm a friend of mine set my wife up uh, in September. Set me and my wife up in September 2012. Um, we went out for drinks, and she was not interested in me in the <laughs> least. Uh, and um, and I was immediately smitten and head over heels in love with her. And uh, you know, I um, a couple months later, Hurricane Sandy happened. And, uh, my wife, Meredith, um, so she, we have a daughter from her first marriage named Eloise who was six turning seven at the time. And, and Meredith wanted to volunteer in the Rockaways with Eloise, but no organization would let somebody under the age of 18 volunteer. And so she was talking to my friend, Ariel, who ended up setting us up and Ariel said, Oh, you should call Zach. He's out there with team Rubicon. Uh, and I was helping run some of their efforts out there. And so Meredith said, well, I don't want to bother the guy. And Ariel knew, like, I was stalking Meredith for the previous two months. Like, anytime I spoke to Ariel, I was like, did Meredith ask about me? You know, is she dating anybody? Uh, and so Meredith uh, called me. She came out with her daughter and her dad. And we had a great day volunteering, and, and I got a date out of it. And, uh, nice. And, yeah, and turned that date into uh, – Dude, now we have uh, two more kids. We have three kids now, and we have one more on the way. God bless you. And uh, she's uh, with with four kids. She's not going anywhere. So I got, I got her. I finally locked her down. There you go. So look, uh, of, of all the things you've created, that moment probably, I guess, would be the best, right? 
Oh, by far. There, I mean, there is there is nothing like finding your your life partner and uh, and and having children. I mean, children change everything. Absolutely. You know, and so it's uh if there's one if there's one great blessing in my life, it's that it's that I found her and that we made these these great kids together and we got this other great kid from uh, from her first marriage. Would you ever recommend the military to your children? You know, I thought you wanted to end on a time. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think I, it's, it's, it's ultimately going to be their, their choice. Yeah. If they want to talk to me about it, they can talk to me about it. I don't want to push them into it. I would be, I think I'd be disappointed if my children chose not to serve at the same time. I think the hardest job in the world is being the parent of a service member. Yes. And I don't know how you sleep at night if your child is deployed overseas. Agreed. Um, and so it's, uh, as a parent, you know, I, it's, it's, uh, I've got very mixed feelings about it. Uh, well, I, I am a parent myself, so I'm, I'm right there with yeah. you. Well, look, Zach, I mean, again, you know, I told everybody coming in, your pres your resume was dynamic and impressive, and the story uh, matches up to all of that. Uh, I can't thank you enough personally uh, as somebody who's dedicated his life to making veterans' lives better. Um, I, I, that is a, a something I just aspire to have the effect on lives the way you did uh, for veterans, and this podcast hopes to do that in one small way, but, you know, when, when you can change lives like that, to me, that is there is no greater... Uh, better way to serve. Uh, and, and I just thank you for everything that you've put forward. Task and Purpose, again, continues to do amazing things and continues to get the word out there and, and give veterans a voice in a soapbox, as you said. And that is incredibly important as times are changing and they certainly uh, will continue to change faster than we want them to. But uh, as long as there are guys like you out there fighting the, the, the second war, you know, the first war was the one we put on the uniform for. The second war is the one we fight when we're back in civilian clothes and you're at the forefront of that leading the charge and certainly, you know, just all the gratitude and thanks in the world for that. Well, thank you so much for those kind words and uh, hope to hope to see you soon. And, and this has been great. Thank you for, uh, thank you for the time today. Zach Iskold. Thanks for being part of the hazard ground. Thank you. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.